Hello, and welcome to Addicted to Murder. This is Courtney, licensed professional counselor with over a decade of experience. And this is Trisha, and I've never seen the drilling of a bunghole before. I don't think I have either. What is a bunghole? Well, a bunghole is the hole that is drilled into the cask or a barrel of alcohol or wine. Then it's sealed with a cork and cauterized and waxed over. But this bunghole hole is what you would use when you remove the cork to pour the liquid out to use the wine or the liquor. Interesting. Fun fact, I've been to Bunghole Liquors in Salem, Massachusetts, and the first time I went in there, I expected to see Beavis and Butthead paraphernalia because I, at the time, didn't understand what the true meaning of a bunghole was. That makes sense. Yes. I'm actually surprised that you've never seen a bunghole being drilled before. It seems like something that you would have seen. I mean, you would think with my background in bungholeness that I would totally have. I love wine. And I've been to, you know, Maker's Mark and a few other distilleries, so. Well, maybe one day you'll get lucky. Yes. Okay. Well, welcome to Addicted to Murder. And we are starting a new case today. Juana Barraza, a.k.a. Go ahead and say it, Courtney. I believe this is the correct pronunciation. Note, I have not taken Spanish since seventh grade. So I believe La Mata Viejitas, a.k.a. The Old Lady Killer. Yes, we are going down south for this one, a Mexican woman serial killer. Yes, but before we get into that, um, as always, we want to check in with our listeners and social media. So, Trisha, take it away. So, you can um, hit us up on our Instagram at Addicted to M Podcast on Instagram. Facebook is Addicted to Murder Podcast on Facebook, and our e- Gmail is Addicted to Murder Podcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at Addicted to Murder Podcast. Um, please, you know, send us your questions, your comments. If you have a serial killer you'd like us to go over, that'd be great. We have actually two coming up um, in the next few months from listeners who have asked us or reached out and asked us to do um, one that they'd like to do. So we're happy to hear that and we'll take all of your suggestions and maybe we'll, we'll get around to being able to do them. So, yeah. All right. And now we are going to get to our get to know each other question time. And so this week is my week to choose a question. And my question is a little pretext. We talked about in one of our previous episodes that both of us had sort of been involved in the the theater scene when we were younger. Mm -hmm. And so my question today is, what was the first production you were in? How old were you and what role did you have? The first thing I can remember being in was like a choir concert and I don't know if that counts if we're talking about actual theater it would have been seventh grade I was peppermint patty in you're a good man Charlie Brown nice yeah Yeah. I was thinking purely okay yeah so that was like musical theater so that was my first how about you so my first um was I believe I was in second grade and I was in a production of the Pied Piper and I was got to play the role of like the the mayor's daughter. Who, the mayor or the mayor? Like the horse's daughter? No, like the mayor of the okay. town. I don't know the story of the Pied Piper. So the mayor could have a daughter. Oh. But the yes. mayor, okay. But then that's what makes it really, 
I guess, important to the mayor that all the children are lured away from town by the Pied Piper Mm. because he probably wouldn't have cared as much if his daughter wasn't part of it. Gotcha. Well, I can't remember that my elementary school did plays. I don't know. Maybe I was shafted. No, so I think at that time, the school I was at contracted with this program called like the Missoula Children's Theater. And so they had, like, a core member of, like, adults who played certain roles that they would, like, travel around to different schools. Okay. And, like, put on a play basically within a week. Okay. All right. So maybe I wasn't shafted. Nope. But, okay. Well, good question. Yeah. That was exciting. Yeah. Okay. So let's get in with Juana Braza. Um, Just a little bit up front. Um, Being that this is a... um, Mexican serial killer, a lot of the information was translated from Spanish to English, um, or we couldn't translate it ourselves. Um, The dates aren't always the same, depending on the sources. And also, we probably are not going to pronounce these words correctly. So please forgive us in advance, but we're going to give it our best shot with all of the information we have. The main book that we've used is called The Little Old Lady Killer, and it's by Susana Vargas Cervantes. Um, And that's the main source of our information, just so you know. And we'll cite it in the notes. Yes. All right, here we go. Juana Barraza, Juana Barraza was born December 27th, 1957 or 1958. So right there, I mean, people can't decide. But it was in Espiazucan, Hildago, a suburb of Mexico City, to Justa Sampiero and a father who is unknown. But it was rumored that um, it was a police officer. They were not in a relationship and Justa married just Juana's stepfather when she was around four years old. The family was very poor, and Juana did not, intend, did not attend school, and she did not learn to read or write beyond basically just her name. Not much is known about her childhood, except that her mother was an extreme alcoholic and a rumored prostitute, and would basically do anything to get a drink, including trafficking her own daughter. So when Juana was just around 12 or 13, her mother sold her at a bar to a man by the name of Jose Lugo for three beers. Jose would go on to hold Juana captive for the next four or five years, virtually making her like a sexual slave and a domestic slave. And he repeatedly tied her to his bed and raped her repeatedly. That was a little bit redundant, but that's, that's what happened. Juana became pregnant twice during this time. Once around age 13, um, where she either miscarried or had an abortion, depending on what source you hear. And again at 16, when she actually gave birth to a son. Courtney, um, a few things. Tell us about a. Tell us a little bit. Of, uh, excuse me. Tell us a bit about being an illiterate child and how that can have an effect on them. So, not being able to read or write can be very limiting. You know, it makes a person, <clears throat> excuse me, dependent on others for almost everything, for information, directions, understanding documents and contracts really anything um, involving written language. And, you know, Juana would have to trust that whoever she was with was giving her truthful and accurate information, which they probably weren't. Um, And so it would be really easy to manipulate somebody who is dependent on you to sort of understand the world around you. Not to mention, um, you know, it could just be very humiliating or embarrassing to not be able to read or write, you know, beyond childhood, especially as she got into those 
older teen or adult years. Right. Especially if, um, you know, I'm not sure if the people she grew up with were in her same situation where they weren't going to school, but if all of her child age friends were going to school and learning to read and write, she would feel even more alienated from that population. Absolutely. Um, so, but you know, I'm not sure what, what her childhood friendships were like. Um, but growing up and being trafficked by a parent, and especially by a mother, what's happening to Juana? She's a preteen, most likely still physically a child. So, you know, unfortunately, there has always been a market for young girls when it comes to sex trafficking. If uh, Justo is a sex worker, as sort of described, and Juana was around when she was working, it would be easy for a man to just, you know ask for or for Justa to suggest including Juana in the sexual acts for, you know, a little bit more money. Um, And for Juana, of course, this would be her first exposure to sex and one that would be incredibly traumatizing. Not only would it be scary and confusing for a young child, but it would also likely be very painful physically. And the fact that her own mother allowed it to happen would absolutely cause a severe attachment wound in their relationship. And so while we don't know for sure, right, it's probably pretty safe to assume that Justo was not a very nurturing mother. Um, and because of her alcoholism and the poverty that they lived in, you know, Juana likely did not get many of her basic needs met as a child. So there's already um, potential for an attachment disorder there, and then adding in the complete destruction of trust that comes with her mother allowing men to abuse her, you know, her hatred of her mother would be pretty solidified by this point, um, and her ability to create healthy attachments would be incredibly impacted. And I feel like her hatred towards her mother is justified. I mean, that's... I don't know how much more of a betrayal you can do to your child than what she did. Yeah, I don't think there is any. Yeah. So how would being traded for something as small as three beers to a pedophile by your own mother shape your mind? This wasn't just trafficking. Her mom, like, sold her for three beers. Yeah, and as if Juana needed any more evidence that her mother didn't love her or want her, you know, this would definitely do it. And I mean, addiction can make a person desperate, but actually selling your child to get a fix is a line that even like the worst addicts don't usually cross. So it's sort of especially heinous. Um, And Tawana, you know, it proved that she wasn't anything more than a sexual object, you know, and a piece of property that could be bought and sold and then just discarded at will. And for a young girl like Juana, you know, only 12 or 13 years old, this does incredible damage to her self-worth, her understanding of how the world works, and her ability to trust other people. Her mom, um, we might say this a little later on, but her mom told people who were looking for Juana that Juana, you know, left on her own and wanted to stay with this captor. If... In fact, Juana did end up wanting to stay with her captor. Um, is it safe to say that Juana was brainwashed or had Stockholm Syndrome? And if so, or if not, can you just tell us a little bit about that? 
So, you know, whatever the reason is that Juana did not or was not able to leave her captivity, she, you know, did what she had to do to survive the situation. You know, she may have, quote, chosen to stay because he threatened to kill her if she ever tried to run away. Or, you know, maybe an answer would be that her mother, having been the one who sold her, um, sort of made her believe that nobody out there cared for her or would come looking for her. And then it is possible that over the years she developed some kind of trauma bond with her captor, which is often referred to as Stockholm Syndrome. Um, So just a little information about Stockholm Syndrome. It kind of refers to a phenomenon in which a victim develops a kind of alliance or um, even fondness and affection for their captor or abuser. Um, It's absolutely a survival mechanism, depending on, you know, the belief that having positive rapport or favor with your abuser increases your likelihood of surviving or being let go. And, you know, additionally, during that kind of long-term um, captivity like Juana was in for those five years, a victim might learn that kind of like accepting the circumstances or going along with what is demanded leads to less frequent um, or less severe abuse. Do you think that because she was so young, um, it was she fell into a Stockholm syndrome, possibly like situation more than an adult who had a fully functional brain? Um, I think that's possible, or at least the situation would be different in that being so young, um, Juana would automatically see her abuser as sort of like an authority figure. Mm -hmm. Um, Or parental figure as fucked up as one as we've seen. Right, right. Which would sort of increase the likelihood of... Her staying. Yeah, or believing like she had to do what he told her to do. And who knows what he was telling her, like, your mother doesn't want you, which, you know kind of have to believe that but Mm -hmm. okay well being introduced to sex at such a young age and then become pregnant with a then becoming pregnant with a predator's child and having a miscarriage or an abortion with the same predator uh, it must wreak havoc on someone's mind when they are you know any age but at 16 um, when she had the child with the predator um, can you tell us something we may need to know So by the time she was 16, Juana had been living through sexual, physical, and emotional abuse for most of her life. You know, the adults in her life had proven to her to be untrustworthy and incapable of giving her the love and nurturing that she needed. She had experienced two pregnancies already, including pregnancy loss and childbirth. So not only would her body not have been developed to handle the incredible change that occurs during pregnancy, but imagine all of the hormonal upheaval tacked on top of normal teen hormones and the likely post-traumatic stress disorder that she was experiencing. And then additionally, you know, having a child that is the product of rape can also have its own mental challenges. You know, Juana described loving her children and being a good mom was something that was very important to her. Yet at the same time, every time she looked at her first son, you know, he would be a reminder of the abuse that she suffered. And 
you know, it is possible to form a loving bond in these situations. Um, and so I'm not saying that, like, Juana didn't love her son or anything like that. But it's definitely not easy. And, you know, I personally, I can't even imagine the complexity of Juana's feelings towards herself, her abuser, and her son after all of this. I was just thinking that, like, I can't even put myself in her shoes at all. Mm-hmm. I mean... There's not just one thing going on. There's several things going on, and she's virtually kind of all alone. And there's no one that she can trust, at least that's not around her, that she knows of. It's, I don't know, it's heartbreaking that this happened to her. And, you know, being uneducated about it. Right. Like, how scary must that have been if there wasn't access to... Right, and she's obviously not going to school, so there's, there's nobody that either is noticing these things are going on or cares enough to, you know, alert the authority that, that this is going on. So it's just really sad. I don't, yeah. Exactly. Well, so she would remain with this man until her uncles tracked her down at age 16. They had been told by her mother that she left with and had remained with Jose by choice. Um, I'm just going to read a little bit out of this uh, book regarding this part So, here we go. This is a quote. Um, So, Juana was never allowed to leave Lugo's house. She had to do all the domestic chores in the house and was raped repeatedly. She became pregnant and had an abortion. She became pregnant again and had a son. Five years passed before her uncles found her. Apparently, her mother had insisted that Barraza had left with Lugo on her own. Barraza believes her stepfather did not trust her mother and continued to look for her. Her stepfather had shown her love and compassion and, unlike her mother, did not beat her. After Barraza was found, her stepfather helped raise her son. So I just wanted to um, put that out there because it does sound like she did have uncles and a stepfather that cared for her um, at this time. And um, so there was a little bit of something for her to go go home to when she was found. Her mother eventually died of cirrhosis of the liver. And at around 18, Juana ran away to Mexico City. She would find odd jobs to survive. And over the years, she had three additional children with different men a daughter and two sons. Her first child, the one that was the product of the rape um, that she had at 16, was beaten to death during a mugging by a gang and uh, when he was 12, and she witnessed this. So it's tra- heartbreaking. It's tragic, yes. In 1999, Barraza and her three surviving children were living in Mexico City. She had small jobs such as cleaning houses and selling socks and other things on the street, but it wasn't enough to make ends meet. Barraza was a tall, strong woman, and in an odd twist of fate, she found some fame as a lucha libre wrestler. So, yeah, those are those, um, you know, those Mexican wrestlers with the crazy outfits, and we'll post pictures of hers. She kind of looked like the Pink Ranger, Pink Power Ranger, um, with with the masks and everything like that. Uh, She was approximately 30 years old when she started this career. Her wrestling name was La Dama del Silencio or Lady of Silence in English, and her costume featured a mask shaped as a butterfly, and it was pink and white. Courtney, what comes to my, or what comes to my mind at this time is that wrestlers are tough. You know, no one's going to mess with them. Do you think that Juana was drawn to this because of all the abuse she suffered as a child? No one was going to look at her as weak, and she was strong and um, was big as well. Yeah, so, I mean, Juana likely carried around a lot of pent-up anger and rage as a result of the trauma that she experienced growing up. And, you know, as a woman in a traditionally patriarchal country like Mexico, 
there would probably not have been much tolerance for her to express these feelings in other ways. So Lucha Libre would be a sort of a natural fit for this. Additionally, kind of built into the theatricality of Lucha Libre is the ongoing battle between good and evil. And the matches typically featured what were referred to as, forgive my Spanish here, <laughs> uh, tesnicos, or the good guys, versus the rudos, or the bad guys. And when asked which side she identified with, Juana stated that she was rudos to the core, essentially is the translation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so between the circumstances of her growing up, her lack of self-esteem and self-worth, and likely being looked down on and judged for you know, being of the lower class in Mexico City, it makes sense that she would identify more with the bad guys. Yeah, and I can just see her like as a child having this stuff happen to her and just fantasizing about, you know, getting back at people or being able to fight back if anything like this happened again. So, I mean, this kind of makes sense that she goes this way in it a, does. in an odd way, but it does. So, well, Braza was also working the day as a caregiver to the elderly. She would act as a nurse or a maid or do other odd jobs in her elderly elderly clients' homes. She often worked with a friend who collaborated with her to rob these elderly lady, elder, excuse me, who uh, worked with her to rob these elderly people for additional income. This continued for a few months until Juana's friends began dating a corrupt police officer, and they joined forces to blackmail Juana and extort her for twelve thousand pesos for a robbery that she did on her own. She had to stop this particular scheme after this and was barely surviving on the three to 500 pesos she would earn from wrestling each week. When she retired from wrestling in 2000, she and her family were desperate for money. I read that she really messed up her back wrestling. So I imagine that's part of the reason why she retired. Right. I mean, she wasn't young doing yeah. wrestling either. Mm-hmm. She was in her 30s or 40s. Yeah. So around this time, elder, elderly women were turning up dead um, in Mexico City, typically in their homes, um, strangled with things like socks or pantyhose or even stethoscopes. They were also being robbed after they were murdered. It was reported that some of the victims were not strangled but bludgeoned to death with evidence that they were also abused. I'm not sure what that meant. I'm assuming maybe she you know just beat them as well I'm, i don't know they didn't really go into detail on that the mexican authorities were reluctant to admit that there was a serial killer on the loose they got a lot of negative press because of this and when they finally did start to look further into the possibility they decided it must be a transvestite prostitute why not um, they did this because there were witnesses that claimed that a woman was seen at the houses of the deceased. So what did the police do? Well, they brought a whole bunch of transvestite prostitutes in for questions, questioning. But no answers were found. No arrests were made. And they were back to square one. Eventually, they did try to profile the killer and declared that he must have a brilliant mind, possibly be homosexual, and who most likely poses a government official to gain entry into the houses of the elderly. They were still not considering a female as the culprit. They decided maybe it was a transgendered person. There were many sketches from witnesses that actually did look a lot like Juana. Did you look at those in the book? I yeah, did. they were pretty good. Um, eyewitness sketches, you know, sometimes they look nothing like the person. But um, she did have short hair, and like I said, she was tall and muscular for a female, and she was a friggin' wrestler. So 
she was masculine. Um, Courtney, what do you think about the refusal to believe that this was a female serial killer? Do you think it has something to do with Mexican culture, or is it really that rare to have a female serial killer that it is nearly incomprehensible for the police to even consider the possibility? Um, so I also, like Trisha said, did a lot of my research um, in the book, The Little Old Lady Killer by Susana Vargas Cervantes. Um, and in that book, it talks a lot about kind of the cultural influences that were at play in this case. Um, and so there were kind of two main things that stood out to me in her analysis of the situation. The first is the way that the Mexican people at the time thought about serial killers. They were thought to be almost a uniquely American thing, with the typical profile being that of sort of a Ted Bundy type, you know, white, male, smart, and charming. They hadn't had a known or at least recognized serial killer in Mexico for decades. Um, so the idea of having one was sort of out of the norm of, of thinking. And then the second thing that sort of stood out is the idea that a woman, let alone an older woman, could be a killer, especially a killer of little old ladies, went against sort of a very core value and belief system of traditional Mexican culture. You know, according to Cervantes, little old ladies or abuelitas or grandmothers are sort of the core um, that holds all Mexican families and culture together. Their main purpose in life is to care for the families, teach the children and grandchildren, and uphold traditional boundaries. So the thought that these little grandmothers were being murdered was a huge shock to the whole system, mm -hmm. um, you know, in Mexico. And then to even think about a grandmother killing other grandmothers was just unimaginable. Right, because she was old enough at this point to be a grandmother. Yeah, her oldest daughter um, had two kids. Oh, so there you go. Mm -hmm. Okay. I didn't even think about grandmother killing grandmother. Mm -hmm. But, so back to um, a woman serial killer, that was exactly what was happening. It was a woman. Juana was back to her old ruse of targeting elderly women. She would dress nicely or dress up as a nurse. Sometimes she'd wear a wig and she'd stro stroll around the courtyards and public gardens near areas of town where the elderly were more likely to live alone. Then Juana would reach for an old woman to walk by, perhaps on the back on her way back from the market, and, he and would either approach them and offer to help them or follow them home. She would pretend to be a government worker, so they got that right. Um, helping the elderly sign up for the new social welf welfare system, or she pretended to be a nurse offering free home checkups. Once allowed inside, it was like something in her snapped. Um, Juana would find a convenient item in the home and either strangle or bludgeon the old lady to death. And then she would take their money, jewelry, or other valuables that could easily be carried and then casually leave like nothing ever happened. So it doesn't sound like she was stalking these people. It was like purely, you know, these were like victims of circumstance. They were there, wrong place, wrong time. Right, yeah, she she was looking for victims, but she didn't have a particular right. person in mind. Right, so that's kind of different than some of the other um, serial killers we've looked at who stalk their victims first. Absolutely, and it's another confusing thing, I think, for the mm -hmm. police as well, right. as like, what possible motive could right. there be, which we'll find out later. True. So January 25th, 2006, Ana Maria de, lo, 
de los Rejas Alfaro was an 82-year-old who was found strangled with a stethoscope when her tenant came home from running errands. He saw a woman running from the house just as he arrived, and he yelled for the police while he chased her down um, because he had saw what had happened to his landlady. And the woman was caught and was immediately um, arrested. The woman turned out to be 48-year-old Juana Barraza, when her arrest was announced, the media went into a frenzy, especially when they learned that she had been a wrestler in Lucha Libre, and photos of her in her costumes were on every front page. So fingerprint evidence did link Barraza to 10 other murders, but they suspected the, uh, her of killing at least 40 women altogether. The motive, the police believed, was resentment towards her mother, which was why she targeted older females or females that could be, you know, her mother's age had her mother still been alive. Courtney thoughts on the motive. It does make sense to me. So from the information that I've gathered, it really does seem like that was a big part for her. The murder started not long after Juana retired from wrestling, um, which had been providing her with an outlet for the rage that she felt. And so without that outlet, you know, those emotions would have continued to build and build and very likely would have been, you know, directed towards her mother's memory primarily. Um, and, you know, Juana was never really able to express her feelings or, you know, punish her mother for the abuse she suffered because her mother died when Juana was very young. Um, she was just 18. And so she'd probably been having fantasies about killing her mom for many, many years and so I believe, and this is just my belief, this is not a fact um, that I have evidence to back up, um, but I believe the first time she killed, it was probably more impulsive. Maybe the victim wasn't cooperating or she was worried about being caught. So she grabbed a weapon of opportunity and acted on that impulse. But, you know, after that first one, Juana would have discovered a cathartic and effective, if disturbing way to kind of let out her rage by killing old women who acted as surrogates for her own mother. Corny, what I love about doing this podcast is um, you bring up things that I didn't think about. So it makes sense now that you're saying it, that she didn't start killing till after she was done wrestling because her outlet that she had for that rage was gone. And so, yeah, it totally makes sense um, that she had to still let go of all of that emotion and anger and whatever had been building up in her for all those years. And unfortunately, it was in a destructive way rather than, you know, when she was wrestling and she was able to make money and have some fame and um, it was probably fun for her. Um, so, yeah, okay, that's that sucks. Well, in 2008, Barraza was tried for several counts of murder. She, however, admitted to only killing Maria, the one that she was basically caught red-handed doing, um, running out of her house. On March 31st, she was found guilty of 16 murders. She was seven, uh, sentenced to 759 years in prison. She is currently 64 years old, and she remains at the Santa Martha Actilia Women's Prison in Mexico City. And I did read that she was the first um, person to be branded a serial killer prior to being caught in Mexico. Correct. Yeah. All the other people they'd sort of caught who ended up being serial killers 
they sort of didn't know that information about them until after they'd been right. arrested. So she, and I think this was the longest sentence that anyone's ever gotten in Mexico. Yes. Is also what I, I think I remember reading. So she in Mexico is an enigma. Um, she's got all sorts of records, not good ones, but um, Courtney, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think, you know, what something that um, Cervantes references in her book is that, you know, her sentence is so high and it's partly because she sort of is seen as kind of like the most evil and that basically she was a grandmother killing grandmothers. Mm -hmm. And that is just so shocking and wrong. Um to the tenets of their beliefs in, in that culture that, mm-hmm. you know, the justice system sort of had to, had to really show that they were going to punish her. Right. Make Yeah. I mean, I guess they must not do death penalty in Mexico. They don't. Because I feel like the 759 years is a little overkill. No pun intended, right. but. Yeah. You know, on some positive notes, while in jail, Juana has learned to read and write um so she's able to like send letters mm-hmm. to her children and grandchildren um i, I think, believe she also was looking at maybe writing a book right about I, her experiences i don't think her daughter visits her but i think her other kids do i think her other two sons do mm-hmm. right so yeah it's so and important to her to be a mom exactly and you know reports from the jail is that she sort of has taken on almost a mom role. Oh, I can totally see that. And, you know, other prisoners um, refer to as, as like Juanita, which Mm -hmm. is like a term of endearment. Well, I hope that uh, she can find some peace in there. I don't know. I mean, there's no excuse for her behavior, but her childhood was so, so, so terrible that, um, you know, it's you can see why these things happen, unfortunately. Right. Do you see something? Say something, people. Let's stop this stuff from happening. <laughs> right. Yeah. And you know, we didn't talk diagnosis too much in this episode, um, because while Wana probably does meet criteria for antisocial personality disorder, you know, she has been lying and stealing, mm-hmm. and you know, all of this through her whole life. Um. There's just, she just doesn't fit the same picture profile Mm -hmm. as kind of some of the other serial killers we've talked about who almost like, like reveled in the the fact that they were bad. Right. As opposed to maybe being forced into. Falling into it, sort of. Yeah, out of necessity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, well. Um, so this is a short one just because, as we said, there's limited information, but it is a fascinating case. So I'm glad that we, you know, we got to break the mold with a female serial killer. Um, there are some and we'll we'll get around to some more. Um, our next serial killer I'm picking, um, he, we're back to he, white male. He is um, scary as shit. He's a trip. He's a trip and... For some reason, it seems like the government didn't want us to know about him. So that's my clue. Right. It was basically a, a court order to get his records released to the public. Was needed. So. Yeah, I'm excited for that one. 
it's going to be intense. All right. Well, thank you, everybody. And please hit us up on our social media and send us an email and like, follow, tell your friends about us, all that good stuff. All right. See you next Tuesday. Bye. Bye.